It's a sad day in America. It's the first time we're going to have a president impeached for a second time. That's happening today. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Come Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Chris Warnowski, and Jane Cahoon for another robust discussion. It was a newsy day yesterday. Let's get to it. Is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's coronavirus vaccination plan Coming off like the race to find PlayStation 5s before Christmas last year, it sounds like a free-for-all. Jane Coon, I spent the whole night last night trying to understand why DeWine is doing it this way, because it's bedlam. And I can't come up with a reason other than, than maybe they're trying to make all these small businesses make some money off of peddling the vaccine. So let's go through it. We've, we've known who is in line for the vaccine for a couple of weeks. Now we know the how. Right. And getting back to the who for a second, they're they're starting with people age 80 and older, although I think people 65 and above are in this general next phase. But they're starting with the most vulnerable age 80 and older who account for a huge percentage of the COVID deaths. So DeWine said Tuesday that these people are soon going to find out where they can get the vaccines. They're going to partner with uh, local health departments and emergency management agencies and providers to tell, to make, uh, to hold press conferences and make announcements today and tomorrow about where they can get these vaccines. But it's going to be up to the eligible people to call one of these 800 providers and schedule their, their shots. So, you know, there's, there isn't going to be like a central portal where, where people can sign up and they're not going to track, you know, on their website who has what. And uh, the vaccine providers, which include hospitals and primary care physicians and pharmacies, they're going to be in charge of informing people of their eligibility, you know, creating their own sign up process and tracking, you know, how many of their patients have been vaccinated and deciding, you know, all the logistics like where they're going to do the vaccinations. DeWine said each provider will handle their own scheduling. It's important to note that our site, the state site, will only show which providers have been provided vaccines. Providers may go through all the vaccines they have, and that's not available on our website, but that will be available on the provider's website. It may so, be. I mean, the, the, what, what he basically has set up is 800 different vehicles for delivery. And what, what threw me was, you know, you need to call them because they might not have it. We don't know until very late in the game who we're giving it to. So you'll know the names of the providers. It's on you to call, figure out if they have it and make your own arrangements to get it, which, you know, creates kind of a have and have not system. Um, you know, the, the fairness goes out the window when you start bringing in all these decision makers. So, so think about what's going to happen now. A bunch of people 80 and older who, who are anxious about the virus because it can kill them are now going to be frantically calling around, trying to find somebody that can give them the shot. When they, when they run into dead ends, they're going to be more anxious. They're going to be more upset and, and may not be able to find it because it's going to be gone. Why on earth would you not have had a central registry and either the emergency management agency or the health department keeping track, giving people times, giving them places to go that is, that is close to their homes? I, was there any explanation at all as to why they have created this kind of thing. I mean, you're, a lot of you aren't old enough to remember the Cabbage Patch kids, but when those came out one Christmas, that was the <laughs> yes, Christmas I present. Am. And parents were going nuts trying to find them. And that's what this is, except it's about life and death, not some stuffed toy. 
Well, yeah, I didn't hear any explanation about that. I don't know if, if you guys did, but I didn't hear the, the rationale. You could look at this as, hey, it's just the same process as your flu shot. You know, you're in charge of getting your own flu shot, calling your doctor or whatever, except in this case, people, there's a lot more anxiety and a lot more demand and, uh, you know. Yeah, the flu and shot it's, is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. There's never or almost never a supply problem. This is a supply problem and it's life and death. This is not the, I mean, if that's the philosophy, we're treating it like the flu. I mean, that's, you know, that's what a lot of people who didn't believe this was a crisis said at the beginning. And we now know it's nothing like the flu. It's killing people left and right. This one throws me. And what was surprising to me, I, I think we had a hard time understanding this. We were talking to each other in real time on a, on a chat, trying to understand, did he just say what we think he said? So I don't think any of the reporters that were covering the briefing quite understood what this was about <laughs> in time to say, Governor, you seem to be creating bedlam. Why aren't you doing central registries, which I guess we'll have to ask tomorrow, but it's mind boggling. Chris, Laura, what, are you seeing any logic to this? Chris Ranowski, Laura Johnston? I guess my question is some counties have already started central registries, right? So what does that I guess what, like, how does that fit into what the state is now, I guess, kind of doing or, or, or the system? I, I just, it doesn't, none well, of it made sense to me. Well, Frank Jackson talked a little bit yesterday about this, that this has all been dumped on the locals with no infrastructure and no help. So we realized we got a responsibility. So we started doing it ourselves, but now we need vaccine. I mean, he was, he spoke kind of harshly about the way the government, the the wine administration has rolled this out. So I think you're seeing people wanting to serve residents doing it themselves. But but is that any way for the state to approach this? In other states, it's not working this way. Well, and Jackson stood up and said, we need more vaccine, right? And, it, and DeWine even said some of these small places are only going to get 100, 200 doses. I mean, for, for a week. So yeah, he said I, most providers are exactly. He said maybe, maybe some bigger places will get more. So it's not just find it yourself. It's basically telling you this, these could be gone in a day. So it, it, we don't know when the new shipments are coming in. It, it just, it seemed insane when he was laying it out. And, right. well, and they're well, supposed to get a hundred thousand doses, I believe. And then this group of people over 80 is like over 400,000 people, I, I believe. There, but you know, I mean, my folks live in Florida and the system down there is basically like show up, wait in line and you might get it. And which is, again, problematic. And then I read there was another state that made you fill out like a 50 page online questionnaire, which, you know, what 80 year old is capable, you know, I mean, not to denigrate the technological abilities of 80 year olds, but I don't know a lot of octogenarians who who are good with, with web browsers. So, so, you know, it's, 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 I'm sure it's very difficult to find a solution that's going to be easy for everybody. But I mean, we've, we've managed pandemics in this country before and, and it just feels like we don't, we haven't looked to history to see like how, how this has been carried out in the past. And, and, and frankly, I, I just, I feel like, this seems like a very odd libertarian approach to this to just be like, well, we'll let businesses and, and private, you know, public partnerships do. And it's, it's, it's just, it feels like a mess. Well, and I think it sets up, uh, sets up the 
potential for abuse. I yeah. mean, you know, if I, if I really want to get the shot and I'm willing to pay some pharmacist $300 to get me in the front of the line, will that happen? Whereas if the state were registering people and doing it methodically, you could at least make sure there's not a haves and have nots thing going on. Look, it just doesn't make sense. It feels like, you know, it feels like a bunch of people in an insane asylum got together and came up with a plan. And that's what was announced yesterday. I, I don't get it. And we need, you know, we, we now know the who, we now know the how. The next question is why? You're listening to this weekend. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. It's a long week already. Did you have Senator Rob Portman, a longtime ally of Donald Trump, actually say Tuesday that Trump will be to blame for any violence between now and Inauguration Day unless he publicly calls on his followers to stand down? Laura Johnston, we've said lots of strong things about Rob Portman over the past four years and how he stood by and didn't call the president to account when the president said outrageous things. He took a bold stand yesterday. He did. This was his strongest rebuke of the president ever, as far as I know. Here's what some of what Portman said. He said, both in his words before the attack on the Capitol and in his actions afterwards, President Trump bears some responsibility for what happened on January 6th. Today, I call on President Trump to address the nation and explicitly urge his supporters to remain peaceful and refrain from violence. If our nation experiences additional violence and destruction at the hands of his supporters in Washington, D.C. and state capitals around the country, and he does not directly and unambiguously speak out now when threats are known, he will bear responsibility. So those are pretty strong words. And Portman said he's hearing from the FBI about the threat of more violence in Washington at at our state capitals from now until January 20th. So he felt the need to speak out. Yeah, I, I, it was it was kind of a, a stunning thing. I mean, our editorial board actually used the word cowardly in describing him um, last week in one of the most popular editorials we ever wrote. It was the number one thing on our site for, for more than a day um, because of the pattern over the last four years. Portman did. He was one of those that came out that said the president has every right to go into court to challenge it. And once it's over, he needs to stop. And he recognized Biden as the president-elect earlier than some of his Republican colleagues. But he never threw the flag and said this claim about the rigging of the election is nonsense and the president should stop it right now. But he clearly has been moved to action here. Chris Ranaski, you were we were talking about this yesterday. You were noticing some other powerful Republicans in Washington kind of heading in the same direction, that there's a little bit of a movement going on. Well, you have to imagine that that a couple of nights ago, uh, some members of Congress were briefed by Capitol Police on what to expect this weekend and what to expect in the lead up to the inauguration. And you started to sort of see an evolution in the statements from people coming out after that. And then, you know, I mean, you have to imagine somebody like Mitch McConnell, who has, you know, leveraged his his relationship with the president to get an untold amount of you know, judges seated on the court and his tax cuts and, and all of the things he's always wanted, suddenly changing his tune about impeachment. Um, you know, he's one of that gang of eight, which means he gets, you know, he gets access to a lot of intelligence that, that most people don't. And you have to imagine that somebody who stood by the president this long has probably heard something along the lines of uh, that, that sort of made him blush a little bit as to, you know, what is going to happen in the next couple of days. And now you're starting to hear, you know, I mean, one of the organizers claimed that three, three elected representatives, you know, allowed 
you know, people to come into the building and we're actively helping organize. I mean, you're starting to see like a slow trickle of things that are kind of disturbing. No, there's and, even can, allegations can that house members uh, gave some of these people tours in the days leading up to it. A New Jersey congresswoman hinted at that. Jane Cahoon. Yeah, I was just going to note that, uh, well, you've mentioned McConnell. Uh, does anybody here think it's a coincidence that Portman took this bold stand on the same day that that the leader of his party in the Senate, you know, sent signals that he's welcoming impeachment? Uh, it, it seemed to get to me to give Portman kind of a green light here to. Uh, oh, to get- I, yeah, but I, I still think I mean. The president came out yesterday and said, nothing I said was bad. It was all appropriate, and I I don't agree that I provoked it. Um, Portman came flat out and said, I disagree. You did. You did have a role in provoking it. Even with McConnell saying what he did, there are a whole bunch of Republican senators that have not done anything close to what Portman did yesterday so I, I'm giving him points for for standing up. Yeah, I, mean, I, I wish didn't he mean would have been. points away, but but he is give, Mitt McConnell is giving cover now too. Yeah, you know, I, I I think I think he's looking at the future, and and frankly, you know, I mean, I, look, I said this early early on in this presidency that once they had no use for Donald Trump, they would they would not want him in their party, and that that's exactly what is happening. Is that that I I, I think what is is going on now is kind of beyond the pale and indefensible and and they don't want it to define the GOP for the future and and so what they're doing here is a last minute attempt to kind of bifurcate trumpism from moderate GOP and and you know and 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 it's honestly, a really it, long time and it's, and, and, and it's fine like i think cowardly though that is i mean he governed them by fear you do what i tell you or i'm going to campaign against you in my ba-. and they all did it i mean i use the analogy they're like the the monkeys in the wizard of oz and now that the witch is dead they're giving dorothy the broom but you know because they should have been stopping this long time ago when he said all his hateful things and he did all his his kind of bad stuff that we've talked about for four years, they all stood by, they all supported him. And now at the 11th hour, because he governed them by fear and he's lost his ability to do so, they're all rising up against him. I mean, Chris, you used the best line last week. It's like you're, you're a half block away yelling at the bully before you run away from him. You know I mean? That's, that's what this is. So, And, and you know, they, it's important that, you know, so the government functions and we get actual policy and stuff. It's important that that there is cooperation between the two parties, but I don't think that this should, you know, just standing up here at the end of the movie, you know, this this should not be forgotten. You know, this right. this is a stain, and yeah, and it, and it should, and we yeah. should point out that stain every time we see it. Yeah, we want more more than the broom. So, okay, <laughs> you're listening to this week in the CLE. Did an elected Ohio school board member really organize a busload of people to go to the Capitol to support overthrowing our election system? What does this say to school kids? Chris Arnaski, I guess this should be astounding, but for some reason, I wasn't that surprised. Right. So the Ohio Education Association, which is a union that represents 120,000 members here in this state, has called on Ohio State Board of Education member Kristen Hill to clarify her role in organizing a bus from Lorain County to the protests that preceded the the riot at the U.S. Capitol. 
the bus to the protests outside the Capitol that day left from Lorraine County and was advertised on the Tea Party of Lorraine County website. And Hill is listed as an organizer on the event and was quoted in a Channel 5 news story about the bus. Of course, the protests that day were focused on the false narrative that the 2020 election was stolen and that people were going to go there and support President Trump. Hill is an elected member of the state board and represents a region that includes Fulton, Lucas, Wood, Ottawa, Erie, Huron, and Lorain County. And her term expires in, I think, next year. So um, she has not responded to comment from us. She did tell the Illyria Chronicle Telegram that none of the members of her protest group went into the Capitol. Um, but she said that uh, said there was a word that there were infiltrators who weren't there for what the rest of us were there for. So there's this, you know, she's claiming that the, that the people in the Lorene bus were part of the peaceful part of the protest. So, um, so yeah, I, I think they want some clarity as to, you know, what she did and, 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 and so we'll see if we get it. But, but it does get at the idea that, that somebody that is, that has a role in determining how we educate our children is pushing the completely bogus narrative that the election was stolen and would would have supported overturning the will of the American voters to preserve her candidate. I mean, do we really want somebody like that having anything to do with molding young minds? It's just nonsense. Well, I mean, you have to understand. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, they determine things like curriculum, if I'm not mistaken. So... If you're if you're reading the present so dishonestly, I have to imagine your reading of the past is probably not that clear either. So, you know, it is disturbing. And if you look, I mean, this is the second I mean, the first education, you know, I mean, we had the woman from Willoughby who was actually in the Capitol and she resigned after yeah, you know, she, claiming she wants to become the great pedophile hunter. She, and she wasn't a teacher. She wasn't right. But I, but I mean, it is, you know, it's, let me, let me ask there's, there's an added question. layer of disturbing this when it's yeah. an ed, somebody in education. Right. Let me ask Laura Johnson a question. You, you have two school kids in your house. If a teacher in their school started telling them that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, that, that it needed to be overturned. How do you think parents would react? Oh, I think there would be an up, uproar about it because regardless of, of your political party, like you should be teaching what is factual. And I just think that, you know, filling the heads of kids with propaganda is about the worst thing that you could do. And I, I immediately went to look up this woman on the website um, to find out when she was up. <laughs> I was like, please don't tell me we just reelected her. So she was elected in 2018. Um, so she has two more years to serve if she's allowed to not resign. How do you how do you let her keep serving? I mean, she's, I don't know. You know I can I say something here? Um, over the years, you know, we've had these debates in education, like, you know, people who don't believe in evolution and, you know, all kinds of hot button issues that that the both sides argue about, like, should this be in the classroom or not? So it these state school boards and other school boards have kind of attracted these types of candidates, you know, on perhaps extremes on on some of these issues. They need to get on a boat and go to the edge of the flat earth and just go over the <laughs> <laughs> This week in the CLE. 
Are Ohio Republicans like diehard Donald Trump loyalist Jane Timken distancing themselves from Donald Trump after he sparked last week's violent riots inside the U.S. Capitol? And what about our favorite Ohio congressman, Jim Jordan? Jane Cahoon, (laughs) what's going on? Yeah, we are starting to see a little more daylight between Ohio Republicans and Trump. We already talked earlier in the podcast about Rob Portman's, uh, you know, uncharacteristically strong rebuke of Trump. But in the case of Jane Timken, it seems particularly abrupt considering that she's been pretty much fused to Trump and Trump helped install her as chair after he he won the presidency. But she she sends out these weekly emails, this chairman's update, you know, and the they're they're normally just dripping with praise for Trump and and filled with his rhetoric about, you know, radical Democrats and things like that. But this week her her chairman's update email was notable because it didn't even mention Trump's name. And and in fact it noted that the Republican Party isn't about one person or candidate or elected official. And <laughs> wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. Because up until now, that's all she's ever said, that it yeah. is only about one person. Yeah, I mean, about was... Trump saving America. You right. know, I mean, for her to say that this is not about one person after how many years has it been of saying it's all about our savior Trump? It boggles my mind that, that yeah. those words came out of her. Right. And so, of course, we reached out to the party to say, you know, does Chairman Timken uh, still support the president and does she think he's responsible for in- inciting this this riot? And we got a total non-answer about her strongly condemning the violence uh, at the Capitol and being proud of Trump's accomplishment, you know, accomplishments for the, over the last four years and creating millions of jobs, blah, blah, blah. All right. Before, so, you, before you get to Jim Jordan, let me ask yeah. you this. If if there really is a move, as we've discussed earlier, it's a point Chris made, that the old-fashioned Republicans, the one that believed in budget restraint and, and what they saw as conservative values, are using this crisis to divorce the Trumpism era from the party Does that end the reign of somebody like Timken? I mean, she is, you know, and Jim Renacci and all these people that are 100 percent the creation of Trumpism. If the Republican Party does the soul searching that everybody's talking about and tries to return to its roots, it may not be successful. Does that wash away all these people like Timken? I don't know. I, you know, Andrew Tobias, who did this story, talked to one political consultant who's who's skeptical about like whether Democrats can leverage this to their advantage because he just noted that Ohio keeps moving further to the right. So, you know, this was a tr- a strong Trump state. So, that's a hard question to answer. Okay, I, so uh, go ahead, Chris. Oh, I was going to say, I think you know, look at you have to look to Georgia to maybe give some explanation for how, how Trumpism works without Trump on the ballot. You know, you had two candidates there who were, were basically just, you know, you had Purdue and Leffler and, and they were Trump people and they were, they were spouting Trumpism and their, and their desire to, to keep doing Trump things. And, and he wasn't on that ballot and they lost. And so you have to wonder how successful that that brand of politics is going to be because nobody nobody has really emerged as the leader. You know, you had Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley trying to be that, but I think they're tainted beyond belief at this point. So, so you know, but what I'm wondering, Chris, is it, 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 will will this allow people like Matt Dolan um, from who's from our area and in the state legislature? 
and, and is a reasonable guy. And who's the who's the Jaga County guy that we that we talk about all the time? John Eklund. Yeah, John Eklund, really smart guy. You know, when you talk to him, he has fully articulated philosophy and and a point. Does this allow those guys to redefine what this party is? So it's not the fringe that that it's become. I mean, right now you got Becker who wanted to arrest DeWine and, you know, throw him out. And, you know, I mean, the nonsense that has come out of the fringe leaders of this party, if if they get this chance to redefine themselves, does it get redefined by Eklund and Matt Dolan and, and people who actually believe in service to the community? Well, I think they're going to have to stop. I mean, to some degree, all of the GOP has had to pander to this a little bit, you know, and it's, and it, it's really, it really depends on whether they're going to have, it, whether they're going to be honest with the people within their own ranks who are still spouting Trumpism, you know, they have to call it out. It's not the Democrats responsibility. They, they need to clean their own house. And so, no, right. I'm talking, so, right. I'm talking about the Republicans. Do, do they do their, I mean, the Democrats have no role in this. It's about the Republicans. Do the, the mainstream, the old fashioned mainstream Republicans reclaim their party and, and get rid of, these fringe people that that have been speaking for it in Ohio for four years. We'll have to see. We got to. I'd be surprised in in Ohio. And by the way, John Eckland, I think just left the legislature because he was term limited out. Oh, geez, I didn't realize that. <laughs> um, all right, really quick because I want to get to the mayor's race. Yeah. The, yeah. the Jim Jordan, he's not changing his tune, right? He's still staunchly. Right, and and yesterday during this rules committee meeting, it was pretty stunning. He. He was trying to argue, you know, against the 25th Amendment, against impeachment. And the committee chairman, uh, Democrat Jim McGovern of Massachusetts, just kept pressing him to make a statement acknowledging that the presidential election was not stolen. And he really couldn't get Jordan to do that. But it, but the exchange was really interesting. He said, you know, that McGovern told Jordan, hey, because Jordan has called for like unity and let's move on, you know, he and McGovern said, we all want healing, but in order to get healing, we need truth and we need accountability. I mean, people came to the Capitol building to try to launch a coup to stop us from upholding our constitutional responsibilities. And, and he said things like, you know, my question's very simple. I'm asking you to make a statement that yeah, the election was not stolen. Yeah. I, I, we got to stop you. I mean, we're talking about doing a special episode just to talk about Jim Jordan because he's been such a lightning We rod, could go on and on. And we probably will. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who officially kicked off the race for Cleveland Mayor Tuesday, and what is his background? Laura Johnston, it's official. The race has begun. It's going to be the first wide-open Cleveland's race for mayor in 20 years, that, which I hate to say, I covered that part of that. And we have not had one without an incumbent since. We're presuming Frank Jackson will not seek a fifth term. So who's in and who do we think might get in? So Justin Bibb is the first high-profile Democrat to officially declare. He said he's hoping for a new generation of leadership for the Democratic Party. He's a 34-year-old Cleveland native, currently serves as the chief technology officer for a public-private university urban development organization called Urbanova. He's got quite a background so far. Um, He founded a nonprofit on economic opportunity and racial justice called Cleveland Can't Wait. He's a board member of the Greater Cleveland RTA and Destination Cleveland. He's worked as a VP for Key Bank, the head of global cities at Gallup. And I remember him from my reporting days as a special assistant to former Cuyahoga County Executive Ed Fitzgerald. One big thing Bibb says he wants to do is look at the airport downtown and figure out the best way to use it. 
But right, there are a whole bunch of people who are expected to jump into this race. Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly, Cleveland City Councilman Blaine Griffin and Bashir Jones, State Senator Sandra Williams, and former mayor, way back before your time um, he was mayor, U.S. Representative Dennis Kucinich. I do um, I do think Blaine Griffin may not run. He may stay, and uh, if he stays in council, he could become council president. I know, I know, Justin, he and I were on the board of the Cleveland Rising effort a couple of years ago. Uh, and what, what is interesting about him, he grew up in Cleveland. He came from, you know, kind of a, a, a tough, uh, you know, I don't know if it was poverty, but he, he's a single mom and, and times were tight. I talked to him for about 45 minutes last week and it, you know, he, he's overcome adversity and what he has. And it's the first time we've seen this probably since Mike White ran back in the eighties is this kind of youthful charisma. He has no background at all in city government, which is a huge, um, a huge blank spot in his, in his background. I mean, even Mike White had served in the legislature. Justin hasn't done any of that, but if he can appeal to the young voter and galvanize people that are looking to the future, he has a real shot. So it's going to be an interesting race. I can't uh, wait to see how it plays out. It's going to be the most interesting race I think we've had since Mike White left and Jane Campbell faced off with Ray Pierce. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right. Well, we didn't get nearly all the stuff in that we wanted to, but we had some pretty rocking conversation <laughs> uh, and we'll continue to. I still, we got to figure out what, what Mike DeWine is thinking with this plan. It just makes no sense. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE.